Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, where it's Star Wars podcast, offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney+, or a weird Legends novelisation you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 189, and it's 27th of November, 2022. Yeah, so wasn't that finale of Andor pretty great, Kirsty? It was very satisfying season of television. Yeah, and it's sort of like, I hate to rank things, but right now, especially because the whole season is complete, right? So we can sort of evaluate it as a whole piece of work. I feel confident saying this, for me, is the best Star Wars we've had since The Last Jedi. Absolutely. Yeah. Which for me is like very high praise because I obviously love The Last Jedi, right? And Well, you're yeah. not saying it's better than The Last Jedi, you're saying it's the best since then. Yeah. No, no, exactly. <laughs> There's been plenty of other stuff since that I've also really enjoyed, right? I really like season one of Mandalorian. I really loved Visions. You know, people will remember me raving about Visions. But yeah, this to me is just beyond, you know, it's really on that level. So yeah, really good. Yeah, it makes me really happy that Lucasfilm managed to pull this out of their hat and it makes me hopeful for the future. And I don't expect every show or movie to be like Andor. You know, that's not what I'm saying, but I feel like it's kind of opened up the sense of possibility again and that they can do different things and break new ground. And even if something's a prequel or a sequel to something else, it can have like a very different tone or something else to say. Exactly. Um, yeah, and yeah. I feel like it's the first Star Wars project you've had in a long time that is about something other than Star Wars, if that makes sense. And I know this feels like a bit of a dumb statement, but, you know, I feel like Andor is commenting so much on just, like, real human behaviour and real political dynamics that, you know, we've seen over and over again throughout history, you know, just through observing other humans in the course of our own lives, right? Whereas... I love a lot of the other recent Star Wars projects, but they're so self-referential and so sort of dependent on the mythology and mythos of Star Wars that I don't feel like they're really saying much independent of the whole Star Wars baggage, if that makes sense. Whereas I feel like Andor is. Like, just see where I'm coming from with that, Kirsty. I do. Um, yeah, like I was just thinking about Kenobi, as you said that. Or Obi-Wan Kenobi, as the series is actually called. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I I do see what you mean because I think if you weren't like super attached to the prequels or you know even Alec Guinness's version of Obi Wan, you'd be watching that show and be a bit like, oh, this is fine, I'm feeling entertained. But it, yeah, like what's it saying beyond what we already know about these different characters and their relationships? Yeah, um, you know, so much of it is based around what we already understand to be vader and obi-wan's relationship at that moment in time that yeah i mean it's a tall order to kind of break new ground in that realm right like i didn't go into kenobi really necessarily thinking that they would be able to or even want to because there's so much already there that people love yeah whereas cassian obviously he was an existing character but there was just kind of a blank slate there like he'd made references to his past and how he'd grown up and become part of the rebellion but really it's like fertile ground for them just to kind of tell a new story about that kind of character becoming radicalized over time and 
it, they just happened to set it in the Star Wars galaxy. Yeah, exactly. And I honestly feel like, you know, watching this before you watch Rogue One would actually be really beneficial because, you know, you're really meeting Andor and seeing him grow from the ground up, right? We see him, like, in this completely like ground zero form you know where he's directionless you know he doesn't know what he wants to be he has no idea what he wants to do with his life he's just characterized by self-interest and then the whole season is him finding a purpose and then you see him enact that purpose in a way in Rogue One right so I feel like the ideal viewing order when all comes to pass will be to watch Andor before you watch Rogue One yeah I would say so Although I still don't know if Andor would be like my first suggestion for an introduction. Maybe it depends on the person. Yeah. Because I definitely think people would be like impressed by it as a show in and of itself. But if someone was like, I don't, I've never seen Star Wars. Where should I start? I'd probably still say start with Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> you same. know? Yeah. yeah. I, like you, I don't think I'd recommend Andor to someone as their first Star Wars experience. But I think it could be, you know, like I can see that is like a gateway for someone especially I think if someone I don't know they're interested in more like grounded storytelling and they're interested in more stories about ordinary people you know because mm. the original Star Wars is very much about these like mythic heroes and princesses and stuff all these larger than life characters whereas Andor it all feels much more like humble and like bit by bit you know so gradual and carefully built up that yeah I think it would depend on the storytelling preferences of the person you're talking to but I could see a case where it would be a really good entry point but for most people I'd still say Star Wars for sure. I don't know about you but I'm actually having a hard time persuading certain people in my life to watch Andor and give it a shot. Oh no! Uh, Why not? Because they weren't impressed with the previous Star Wars shows on Disney Plus and I'm telling them this is good and they're like yeah yeah. And is it sort of like they don't completely believe you, basically? No. Oh. No. They're like, well, you're a Star Wars fan. You're going to say it's good. And I'm like, no, trust me. <laughs> I'm not going to push it too hard because it's not, it shouldn't be homework. Sure. But yeah, I'm like, well, you're missing out. <laughs> I hope that people who have become a bit jaded as a result of previous Star Wars TV entries, they do give this a chance because I think there's a lot of room for people to be pleasantly surprised. I've had a friend who has literally been disappointed by everything Star Wars on Disney Plus since 2019. And he sent me a message today being like, I've watched the first six episodes of Andor and it's so good. I can't believe it. And I was so, so pleased because obviously I was able to write back and say, honestly, mate, the next six episodes, you might not believe me right now, but they're even better, you know? (laughs) And I can say that completely truthfully and from the center of my heart right because i genuinely believe that and i think the first six episodes are very good especially the aldhani arc but yeah just the final six the next level you know i think they're in a different league so yeah what fun times to be that fan and just knowing that you have amazing styles content coming up for you so yeah i can't even think to you must have more of like a solid idea in your mind of like what episode is what but to me it's the kind of show that just kind of runs on from each other so i I think I'd struggle to tell you like what happened in episode two versus three or four. Yeah. Um, but it all fits together really well for me. I don't think I can really isolate it by quality or. Yeah. Like I feel like I'm maybe more inclined towards that because I put together the podcast notes. Okay. <laughs> so I have to organise them somehow. 
so yeah I'm quite attuned to it in that way um but I know what you mean it does all flow very very well and I think to that point you often had episodes where there weren't like proper endings as such you know the endings would feel quite abrupt sometimes because the episodes would just segue into each other so seamlessly yeah maybe also because we haven't been doing it weekly so I haven't had that kind of breaking up in my mind the segmenting out exactly um okay be on the note about talking about individual episodes let's go even (laughs) further and cut it down into individual story threads which we know is the fun fun way we like to talk about Andor on this show um so yeah where i wanted to start was talking about cassian and his bezzy mate melshi escaping from narkina 5 this is one of the less exciting parts i think of the last two episodes but it's still worth acknowledging i'm happy they escaped and i really really liked those like fisherman aliens kind of oh they were so good that was very like dark crystal jim henson yes more of that Exactly. And it was like catnip for all the people complaining that there haven't been enough aliens in the show because yeah. Like me. Those were some hardcore <laughs> aliens. They were really good. They just had so much personality for such a short amount of screen time, you know? Exactly. Like they were just fully formed, you got a sense of history and culture there, the like resentment towards the Empire and fear of humans in general because of it. Like it was just so well done for such a short scene. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, I also felt represented because I thought they were doing a form of like West Country um, accent. Yeah. Um, so I was like, yeah, there's me. That's me on screen. <laughs> I appreciate this. Thank you, Tony Gilroy. We don't you. want your kind around here. <laughs> That's very good. You sound like some it's, of my aunts. <laughs> I just sound like a pirate. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yar, matey, yar. It's really bad. It's like really rubbish. It's sort of like trying to performatively do my own accent. I know I have an accent. <laughs> um, but, you know, if I try to do an exaggerated version, it's always a disaster. So I won't. Yeah. And just roll with Kirsty's version. That's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> but they got so much through there with their, their dialogue about like what the Empire had been doing there and how their planet had been ruined and their resources were gone. Exactly. Yeah. It was so good. And I must say, I also love seeing a quad jumper. Nice little Force Awakens vibes from that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Kirsty, trivia contest. In what context do we see the quad jumper in the Force Awakens? Wait, is that the deleted scenes with. No, it's uh, in the movie. It's early, oh. quite early in the movie. Oh, I was going to say it was Ray and Finn across Starkiller. Oh. It is Ray and uh, Finn. Um, do you want me to tell you? Yeah. So it's when they're escaping the market on Jakku and they're trying to find a ship oh. to leave on. And okay. they're like, oh, let's take that quad jumper. And then it's exploded. And then they run to the Falcon <laughs> instead. Okay. So yeah, that's where the quad jumper was introduced. So, Got it. Yeah. I was, yeah, I had the snow in mind. No, it's fine. <laughs> you realised it was associated with Rain Finn. That's good enough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Cassie and Amelshi get off the planet with the help of the Fisher aliens, which is lovely. Um, and they go back to Neomos, um, where Cassian's briefcase is still on top of the shower. So Yeah! Oh, you sound really shocked. Were you surprised it was still there? I didn't expect to like see him actually go... I don't know. I have not made firm predictions throughout this show because I've got everything wrong. But even when I haven't, and I've just kind of had an expectation in the back of my mind about realising it, I was like, oh, it's really nice to see him physically going back to that room. I just didn't think he would necessarily have the opportunity to do it. Yeah. But that was quite satisfying and like funny to see other people like sleeping in the bed, yeah, <laughs> having to be quiet. 
Exactly, and I can yeah. give an insider's perspective into the use of that place as a hiding place. Because as a teenager, I used to work as a hotel cleaner. And I can tell you that hotel cleaners do not look in very high up places like that. They just don't. It doesn't happen. There's not enough time. You so, don't have the time. Exactly. Yeah. So it's highly realistic, essentially, that the briefcase would still be there. So good job, Cassie. And you found a really great hiding spot for that. Um, yeah, and it made sense to me that he went back and got it because I kind of had the feeling that Nemec's manifesto was too important for it to not well, that, be picked yeah. up again. So I was like, yes, he's got it now. And yeah, that made me happy. I think for some... Yeah, because I remember when he was initially... Well, not kidnapped, but like, I guess, yeah, taken away by the troopers. Um, I was like, oh God, yeah, does he have Nemec's manifesto on him? Because then they're going to take that away and... And because I hadn't really put it together that he would eventually go back there, I was just like, oh, that's odd because the manifesto, as you say, seemed so important. It was so important for Nemec to get that to him and pointed that Vel would give it to him. Yeah. But yeah, that all... I don't know. I'm obviously not very good at like thinking ahead and anticipating things, but it meant that I was just like over the moon about things coming back together for this episode. Exactly. And everything, yeah, just kind of setting out ready for the finale yeah and i was also glad to see cassian get some of his money back so it's like yeah cassian i'm glad that you can buy some new clothes and yeah just clean yourself up a bit good for you um and also i love melshi's shirt i don't know if you noticed but melshi has a very fetching shirt at post the briefcase being recovered um and yeah it's i don't remember it specifically choice. but i remember him looking pretty good yeah no he cleans He's up cute. nicely so yeah good for melshi he looked like he'd maybe had a bit of a time on the beach or something you know enjoyed himself a little so yeah i was glad for that although to be honest i was a little bit surprised there was so much out in the open you know just like saying their goodbye and stuff on the beach i know i was like you could have a stormtrooper come past and the exact same thing could happen to you. Get away from there. Exactly. It's like, I know it's a nice beach, guys, but really? So yeah, that was one of the maybe less um, realistic aspects, but it's fine. I, I totally get it. I guess, it. I guess it's quite interesting thematically for him to go back to that exact same spot where so much has changed to Cassian's own like sense of perspective and his understanding of just how evil the Empire is. But then nothing has changed in a sense. Like, it's this odd, like, what kind of time has passed where he can go back to this exact spot and it's just like, that's where your life was in its last moment. Yeah. You can just kind of resume it. But of course, the difference is Marva is gone and he has to stop and process that and, like, accept that he really was gone for a good chunk of time. Yeah. And something so binary has now, you know, she is gone and will never come back. Exactly. It's really, really heartbreaking when he finds out his mum's died. Um, and yeah, I've also seen lots of people point out that there's a really beautiful shot of him sort of like gazing out of the ocean, you know, mm. after he finds out and how that contrasts with, you know, him gazing out into the ocean at the end of Rogue One, you know, when he's about when to When he die. tells Jin that her father would be proud. <laughs> maybe he's thinking about Marva too. <laughs> Honestly, I just love how like you know this show recontextualizes the whole of Cassian's arc basically in Rogue One because that was a character that never really even stood out to me much in that movie to be honest you know I liked him you know Diego Luna's a really good actor like he's like fun he's charismatic but he's an ensemble cast you know so he's one of several main characters and you know I never felt like I really got to know him on any deep level whereas now I feel like 
I actually really want to go back and rewatch Rogue One, which is a nice feeling. So I literally haven't watched it in years. So yeah, I'm going to watch it too. Maybe we can kind of do an episode around that. Yeah, that would actually be really good. So I know we were talking about potentially revisiting it before Andor, but now you know we've both seen Andor. I think it's going to be way more valuable to rewatch Rogue One with the context of Andor rather than vice versa. So yeah, that would be really good. We should do that. Yeah, because there might be entire character moments and bits of dialogue that we've you know completely forgotten about with Cassian but now we'll be able to go in and focus on him and his arc yeah and how he fuels Jin's. so exactly so I think you know obviously Tony Gilroy came into Rogue One quite late but he obviously had quite heavy input into sort of like retooling it essentially before he started on Andor he went back and watched Rogue One very very carefully because I feel like that's why it's lining up so nicely and there's all these like visual parallels and you know, the dialogue sort of like foreshadowing certain developments in Rogue One and stuff, you know, I feel like that has to be by design, you know, so it's clearly someone who's looking at all that stuff carefully. Um, Yeah, so let's move on to talk about Mon Mothma and her circle on Coruscant. There's obviously more to say about Cassian, but, you know, we'll come back to it when he gets back to Ferex, because that's a whole different can of worms to talk about, basically. Um, yeah, so in episode 11, we there's not much Mon Mothma in that episode, but we see Mon watching her daughter participating in these old Chandralin cultural traditions, essentially, and Mon's basically talking about how, you know, it's all coming from Leda, the daughter herself, is not from her, and it's very clear that Mon doesn't even like these traditions, and she's kind of feeling a bit helpless over how her daughter's becoming so caught up in them, and yeah I just find this whole story thread so fascinating so I feel like so much I don't understand a lot of where it's coming from in terms of like why Leda is so obsessed with this and Mm -hmm. that's okay I don't need everything spelled out for me but yeah I just think it's such an interesting choice yeah I think it is interesting and I wonder how how much of it has been like a conscious attempt from the the writers to kind of bring in this idea that you know, some some of the younger generation are becoming more politically conservative than their parents were. Yeah. Um, you know, in our world too. I wonder if that's like playing a factor or if it's just something kind of unexpected to explore because you would just kind of think the daughter of Mon Mothma would be following in her footsteps. And I guess she does feel like she is in a way because you have, you know, that striking image of the families meeting there and Mon is kind of she's thinking about her own path of her marriage right and how things have not been exactly happy there and why would Leda want that for herself but maybe the mirror image is Leda looking at her mum and seeing how much she's accomplished while being married yeah and so she's not like this is going to restrict my future in a in a certain way be very interesting to see where this goes. I, I was saying to you before we started recording, I kind of hope that Leda plays a bigger part next season, but equally I can see them kind of moving away from that storyline. But it just makes Mon Mothma in Rogue One and the original trilogy so mysterious to me, which is something I just never really thought about before. Like what happens to her family and and her connection to Shandrilla. Yeah, exactly. And I also find it a really interesting choice because throughout the whole show there's a lot of emphasis on cultural traditions um and usually they're framed as these really important like aspects of culture that help to build and strengthen communities 
Like if you think about how on Altani there's the festival of going to watch the eye, you know, and like bringing all the community together and they've got these rituals associated with that event. And then obviously in the finale with Marva Andor's funeral, there's lots of rich cultural traditions associated with funerals, you know, and how they honour the dead, like with, you know, her ashes being turned into a brick, for example. Um, and those are all framed as these like really important like totems, you know, that give people like resilience and strength in the face of the Empire. But here it's sort of showing traditions that are sort of working against later you know so I feel like at the moment I kind of don't quite understand what's being said with this because I don't understand why these Chandrullin traditions are being framed negatively when the others are being framed more positively and yeah it's just something I have conflicted feelings on uh, I'm kind of like struggling to find my end point there but yeah I, did you notice that sort of like contrast in the treatment of the different cultures Kirsty? yeah I think it's because the way we're getting introduced to these cultures, this custom in particular, is through Mon Mothma's own marriage, which is not a happy one. Yeah. So she doesn't want her daughter to have that same fate, but maybe she won't. Yeah. Maybe this will be a good fit for later. We we just don't know. So it does kind of have this, yeah, it's this big question mark around it. Like you say, you just don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. And I feel like maybe is sort of like another sign of how sophisticated the show is because it's not trying to make a blanket statement that all customs and traditions are inherently good. It's shown that they can be good, that they have the potential for good, but they also have the potential for bad, you know, that they can be symptomatic of sort of like a reactionary thought process, you know, where you're sort of working against your own interests without even realising it just because you're focusing on blindly following these traditions even when they're not favourable to you that they're not actually presenting you with an advantage when you're just following them mindlessly um, so yeah I think that yeah. might be what's going on but I'm not sure I know we all have Game of Thrones brain at this point but that boy just looking so young it was quite a visual shock wasn't it yeah exactly and I think I was especially surprised so I think he's meant to be older than later yeah. yeah so I think the dialogue was that he's about to turn 15 and she's 13 and yeah. it looked like the reverse to me to be honest he looks maybe even like 12 you know he looks really young but then again I know some boys you know they go late puberty so yeah puberty's funny yeah he'll probably grow by like two feet in the next year because yeah puberty um but yeah, no, and I also, just on a superficial level, I have to say how fabulous were those Chandrillan costumes. Just, oh my god, the costume design is so, so beautiful. I love it. Yeah, it was nice to see the two families coordinated as well. Yeah. Like, are they just, like, the colours for Chandrillan in general? So they're both wearing them? Or was it just, like, coordinated for their meeting? I don't know. Yeah. I feel like, you know, we don't know the answer to that question, essentially, but I feel like the costume designer probably had a lot of thoughts because it's clearly very intricate, you know, and very carefully designed. Um, and yeah, just to backtrack a little, there's obviously a scene with Vel in episode 11 where Mon's basically talking to her about how helpless she feels, you know, over mm. watching Leda sort of be taken from her, kind of, by this fixation that she has on all these traditions. And Again, I, I just, it makes me really fascinated to see what Vel's reaction to Leda's presumed engagement is going to be. 
because I can't imagine she's going to be super psyched that that's happening, even if, even if it's something Leda wants to do for herself, because I feel like Vel is also not a fan of those traditions, to put it mildly, um, for very good reasons. Well, yeah, and the the perspective is that Leda's probably too young to know what she wants in that regard. Yeah. Right? That's the whole point. These are children. Exactly. Yeah, so again, it's setting up lots of really rich conflicts and interesting dynamics for the second season. So yeah, interesting stuff to come. Yeah, then we got Lufen, Claire and Saw. Mostly, we only see Claire and Saw in episode 11. Um, and Claire is mostly telling Lufen off um, for being a bit lax, I think. <laughs> because yeah, she seems to be like the proper hardcore one. Yeah, well, you were saying you felt like Lufen kind of plays things by ear and is open to changing his mind a lot i mean yeah. you see that play out in the finale most obviously even though we could see that coming in a vague sense yeah you know his his attitude to Andor would have had to have changed at some point but claire like she just seems to be so meticulous with planning things and then once something is done she's like there's no point lingering on it it's done let's move on to the next part she's like very methodical and cold yeah Whereas he he does seem to have more of a intuitive, flexible approach. Yeah, and I must say, like this will probably make me sound like a monster because I think Claire is very very cold in the sense that you know she'd probably order the death of anyone if she thought it would protect their interests. Um, but I kind of relate to Claire because I'm also like a bit of a planner, you know, and I sort of like I don't panic, but I get very very unsettled when I find out that a plan needs to be diverged from, for whatever reason, you know. So I can kind of relate on a much much more low-key level to how Claire feels I think because you know it's a sort of there's obviously these incredibly high stakes associated with what they're doing you know literal life or death you know they could be found out and like executed at any moment essentially and you know I think that's part of why being so meticulous and planning so carefully is so important to her because when there's these incredible odds stacked against you, at least if you're planning everything carefully and thinking through every scenario, then, you know, you can feel a sense of control. But then if those plans are suddenly thrown out, essentially, as Lufen tends to do, you just, you sort of, like, have to start from the ground up again, you know, because everything needs to be rearranged. So I can understand the terror associated with that, essentially. Mm. So, yeah, that helps me empathise with her, I think. Yeah, they just have different strengths. Like, Lufin gets into a situation where he has to think very quickly on his feet with that tractor beam, you know, and there's people like, okay, we're going to come on and inspect you. And he has to figure out a way out of that. And it's, like, genius, really, how he manages to get out of that situation. But that is kind of, like, on the fly. Like, he didn't see that coming. But he manages to stay calm and just go with it. Yeah, no, exactly. He's got a completely different skill set and it's a very impressive set of skills. I actually saw a lot of people saying, oh, maybe Lufin's a outcast Jedi or something because oh. he has really good piloting skills. I and guess he could be. It's, it's, that it's would like, be interesting. It's possible, but I don't think he needs to be. There's plenty of people who can fly real good who aren't Jedi. So. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't mean that they can't have like the Force helping them, but it doesn't mean that he became a Jedi. <laughs> Exactly. And I must say, I am really, really interested in learning more about Lufin's background because, uh, I don't know, I feel like he's clearly so highly motivated. You know, and he talks about having like come up with the plan for how to bring down the Empire 15 years ago, 
which is when the emperor came to power. So, you know, he's clearly had this idea of rebellion in his mind for a long, long time. And it's sort of like, what's his motive? You know, I'd love to learn more about that. I don't know if we ever mm. will, but I would like to know that story. It'd be good Palpatine's stuff. Palpatine's brother. Oh God, Palpatine's brother. <laughs> he is like the anti-Palpatine though. Yeah, this is true. Like, oh God, yeah, this is just... <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> the wills are turning, Kirsty. I'm thinking, hmm. <laughs> the Palpatine expanded universe is exactly just what saying, we want. if we ever find out that he's from Naboo... Oh god, yeah, yeah, then it's game over. <laughs> then he is some sort of secret Palpatine. <laughs> or he could be another son. Who knows? Palpatine is getting on in years, so I'm gonna shut up. That's horrible, sorry. I mean it is weird to think about Tross in this time frame and like Palpatine's already out there doing weird exegol shit. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Wait, which in a way they've got a good cover for that because he's literally never around. You know, he's just not... He's absent. He's, he's Too busy cloning snow. Yeah, exactly. He's busy making snow. He's busy having, like, cloned sons who disappoint him. Like, Scott Evil in the Austin Powers films. <laughs> Sorry. I'm amusing myself way too much. Um, but yeah, he's doing all sorts of, like, wacky shit that Tony Gilroy has zero patience for. So, yeah. He's never going to go there, and I'm really happy for that, because... It would just make all of this seem ridiculous. <laughs> Sorry to come back to Perrin for a little bit. Do you, what do you think's going to happen to him now? Mon's kind of like dobbed him in with like the driver listening in. Oh, do you think? Yeah. Do you think it's going to be anything, or is she like, well, he wouldn't face the serious consequences for this because it's just like a gambling, like a personal vice, as opposed to actually funding a rebellion? Yeah. I feel like what she's doing is she's obviously seeding the idea in the Empire's minds that, you know, any inconsistencies in her finances are ultimately going to be traceable back to Perrin and his gambling problem. But then, so in that case, nothing would happen to him in the sense of, like, the Empire getting involved, right? It would just be like, well, it's their money in there spending it how they choose well there is actually the scene with the isb where you see blevin talking to um the driver you know and he's explaining why it's important you know that the driver keeps them updated on all these seemingly mundane conversations and he says something to the effect of oh that's a weakness we could exploit or something right so yeah i i don't know what that means right now but i do feel like they'd use it in some sort of way it wouldn't just be something they observed so yeah, how they'd use that, God knows. Um, but I'm sure that's another thread that's going to be picked up in season two. Right. Yeah. So really interesting stuff. And also, I love the shout out to Canto Bai. Um, I can totally see Perrin going to Canto Bai and just having a grand old time. <laughs> because honestly, I feel like every single scene that Perrin has been in this whole season is always at some sort of party. You know, there's just always like the good times never stop for. That's parents. great. I I I must admit, and I know this is not the intent, but I'm kind of warm to Perrin over the time. I'm just like, yeah, he's alright. Wow. Do you want to start like a parent fan club or something? Yeah. No. Parent defense squad. He's he's not the worst person in the show. No, he's not. He he's not a Deirdre by any means. Let's put it that way. I think he's just a bit of a big old loser and completely apathetic in almost all respects. Um, so yeah, not great, but not the worst person in the world either. Um, but at the same time, I can understand why Mon isn't thrilled about being married to him because yeah, doesn't look. Oh yeah. In life. 
But as a character, he's entertaining. Oh yeah, no, as a character, I think the actor does a brilliant job. He's really entertaining every scene. Like he's just so yeah, just like, oh god, you're so boring. You know, he just exudes that energy every time he has to interact with Mon and yeah, it's a very entertaining dynamic. Yeah, it just it just makes me wonder what are his feelings on Leda? Because she says, like, oh, it's not coming from him. He's quite open-minded about this stuff. So it's like, well, then does he care? Yeah. Or is he just like, oh, she's, she can do what she wants? Yeah, like, we obviously never really have a scene that shows us that. But I feel like at the end, when we see, you know, the girl walking towards the betrothal, essentially, like, parents just looking a bit like, oh, God, this is so boring. <laughs> you know, he never checked out. I, I yeah. guess is the... Um, right description whereas Mon is obviously like oh god I hate that I'm doing this so much yeah and yeah no one's very good at masking their emotions um and yeah it's very interesting apart from Skulden and his wife they just look completely stone cold they're like yeah this is a thing that's happening glad it's happening but hmm. not prepared to show it um but yeah anything else you want to say about the whole Coruscant stuff of Mon and her circle I don't think so. There might be something I'm missing, but... Yeah. I will just say again, like, everything about the whole Coruscant thread, you know, the production design and the costumes, just the whole aesthetic that they've created for that world is so, so beautiful. And yeah, just pure chef's kiss. It's wonderful. And yeah, just giving Mm. Mon Mothma a personal life is incredible when you think back to her appearance in Return of the Jedi, which is literally like 30 seconds on screen or something. So I actually had a really interesting interaction with a friend who I'd lovingly describe as a normie because, you know, she's seen Star Wars, she likes Star Wars, but she's not like an obsessive who podcasts about Star Wars, you know, so she's just a regular viewer. And she was writing to me about Andor because she's been watching. And she's like, oh yeah, I love the senator character. And I was like, hang on, does she not know who Mon Wafa is? And so I asked her. Well, why would you though? <laughs> yeah, no, and again, Lord, you're totally right. There's no reason why she should. But she's like, no, I, I didn't remember, you know, that she'd been in any of the Star Wars media. And, you know, I sent a picture of her from Return of the Jedi. And she's like, yeah, no, I don't remember that character. And it's just interesting to be reminded of the fact that yeah, she's like a complete bit part in, you know, that original trilogy film. Um, and yeah, now she's a huge deal. So yeah, love that for us. Yeah, it's great. She's obviously been a huge presence in the fandom. Like, you know, most intense Star Wars fans know about Mon Mothma. Yeah. But like you say, it's almost like an Easter egg in that way. <laughs> like referencing the original trilogy because she was kind of spun out of nothing. Like she's basically an original character. Yeah. And like, even when I'm, you know, expecting to go into Rogue One rewatch and really there being not much there beyond what she's doing that relates to like the rebellion and their plans because there wasn't anything there before. Or maybe there were in like novels and comics and stuff, but not to my knowledge. Yeah. No, and again, I think it's just this sense of there being a discrepancy between the character's stated importance and the importance the character is given by the screen time because obviously when she's introduced in Return of the Jedi she's introduced as the leader of the Rebel Alliance so that's obviously a very important position but it's just not supported by the level of visual emphasis she's given which is you know she's exposition she's there to give exposition. Yeah the story's just not about her is it? Yeah exactly so she's peripheral but it because she is 
factually so important to you know this aspect of the story is totally right and appropriate that she is suddenly a central character here so yeah I love it and justice for Genevieve Raleigh who's doing a fantastic job it's a wonderful performance great performance yep honestly just across the whole season yeah no I'm so happy for her you know she's really like made the character her own so yeah just doing great work but yeah, just very quickly to return back to Lufen and all his antics. Obviously, we see him reunite with Saw again. And there's awful irony because Saw's like, yes, I will join Krieger. I know, that was kind of cute. I was like, ooh, ooh. Poor Saw. The awkwardness, the horrible awkwardness. Yeah, I, I was like cringing watching that. And again, that's a scene that perfectly illustrates Lufen's spontaneity. Because you can just see on his face, he's like, oh, shit, you know. Oh, yeah, you did try and talk him into that last time you saw him. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, yeah, Krieger's a goner, man. Just, no, no. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, so you could do this to me anytime. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> kind of explains more of Saw in Rogue One, honestly. Exactly, and it's horrible, isn't it? It's it- like there's like poor Saw, you know, he's having like a moment of like optimism where he's like, Yes, I'm prepared to collaborate with another like rebel sect and then he's like, Nope, my paranoia is completely justified. <laughs> so Oh boy. Yeah. It's and a shame. even turned him against two tubes. <laughs> <laughs> Not two tubes. <laughs> no two tubes. I felt so sorry for two tubes. He's like, What the well, fuck? Obviously, <laughs> he's in Rogue One. So obviously Saul believes him in time. It's not like he manages to turn him against yeah. him. I'd imagine that must be a very scary position to be in though, because Saw is so volatile. You know, yeah. so he could have probably executed two tubes on the spot. So it was lucky that Saul was presumably in a good mood. So. That was just so funny that Lupin was like, Yeah, I've been chatting with two tubes. We're tight. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, you've just endangered his life oh my casually. God. <laughs> yeah. Lupin's mind wild card what a mind it's wonderful (laughs) oh boy okay Uh, is there anything else you want to say about those characters um, Kirsty in terms of Lufen Claire and Saw I don't think so but do you you expect to see more of Saw in season 2 oh god yeah I really think so maybe like independent of Lufen a bit more like maybe well he no because he doesn't know Cassian yet does he no so like who would maybe we'd get some Mon and Saw interaction yeah, I feel like maybe Lufin would have to send some sort of emissary because I feel like Saw probably won't be super keen on seeing Lufin face to face again. I feel like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that, be someone else. That might spell danger for him. <laughs> and even two tubes would definitely not like to see Lufin again. So. Oh my god, I, lo- I love Star Wars. There's a character called Two Tubes that's wonderful. Because <laughs> <laughs> he has two tubes. Exactly, and it implies the existence of a three tubes and a four tubes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, maybe that's in the second season. We'll find out. <laughs> so yeah, we very briefly talked about Cassian finding out that his mum had died like earlier in the podcast. But that's obviously how episode 11 starts with Marva's death. And at first, I think I was a little bit shocked because I was sort of expecting, you know, like a big deathbed scene, you know, where we saw like her final moments. But obviously, I think it makes complete sense because, you know, you see her hologram. And I think ultimately that's a much more powerful final statement for that character. You know, you still Mm. see her as strong and impassioned and really, you know, like making her final statement such a powerful and important one rather than, you know, just seeing her all feeble and weak on her deathbed. So 
I think now we have both those finale episodes together, I think that choice makes a hell of a lot of sense. It was wonderful. And yeah, I'm really, really glad to see that they made that choice with her because I was a bit like, well, she's chosen to stay and she obviously has these strong political convictions now. And this is her actually like acting that out. Yeah. But in a way that like, you know, the fact that it's after the fact, she can see how that will inspire more people in turn. Yeah. Exactly. And I think just like a quiet, like small touch I loved is just seeing how so many different members of the community came out, you know, after her death just to help put her house in order, you know, like in like trying to like comfort the droid even, you know, I think it was Brasso who really took on the role of comforter and cheese. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it was so, so touching, you know, and Again, I think that shows, you know, why you love and care about this community, you know, and why it's so important that they're all bonding together to make the stand against the Empire. Because, yeah, as much as anything, this show is really about the power of community, you know, and all these people finding a common cause and coming together to fight against oppression. And, yeah, I just feel like that very personal outlook the show has on it by literally showing people, you know, looking after this woman as she's dying and helping to sort her affairs after she's died you know that's the sort of little touch it would never normally get in star wars media and i feel it makes it all so much more like resonant and powerful that yeah i really love it it felt yeah very lived in and like cassian comes from this real community that i know when he went back before like before he was imprisoned like bix told him to stay away and that people were turning against him because of what happened but that can't be everyone because Marva was still clearly so respected and loved. Exactly. And I think just the turnout for her funeral, you know, like it sort of belies that, doesn't it? Because it shows, you know, that all these people, they're there, they feel her message and they want to act on that message. And yeah, it's just really beautiful, inspiring stuff. And I also really loved that you get two farewell messages from Marva. So you get her public statement, you know, which is the hologram and that really like rabble rousing speech, you know, that gets the people fired up to fight back against the Empire. And then you get those very, very personal final words for Cassian um, that, again, I think Brasso passes on to Cassian after Cassian has sneaked back to Ferex. And they're just really, really beautiful last words um, from Marva to her son. Could you read them out, please, Kirsty? I've highlighted them. Yeah. Tell him he knows everything he needs to know and feels everything he needs to feel. And when the day comes and those two pull together, he will be an unstoppable force for good. Tell him, I love him more than anything he could ever do wrong. I love that line so much and I can't help but wish that we'd got something like that in the sequel trilogy between Leia and Ben. <laughs> yeah, I've already seen like um, gift sets, I must say, you know, that have like superimposed those words over like gifts of Ben and Leia. And yeah, again, it just makes you really feel like, oh God, what could have been, you know, just how powerful that could have been. And I don't know, and I'm going off on a tangent, but it makes me think about how different Tross might have been if Carrie hadn't passed away. You know, so for like, they really would have had a lot more potential to do that in that movie if she'd still been around. And Yeah, yeah. I think they made a, a, you know, a good attempt with the Han and Ben scene. Yes, but this dialogue just kind of goes above and beyond. Yeah. The writing is just so superior. It's really great. Yeah. I think it makes a real difference. And I just, I love seeing 
you know a real loving mutually caring um mother son relationship in star wars exactly and i and i also love this between like an adoptive mother and her son as well and the fact that that's never really even acknowledged you know they're just mother and son you know yeah. we know factually that she adopted him but it doesn't matter in the slightest you know she's just his mum she's his mother you know and that bond is so incredibly primal and powerful and there's like no equivocation of that and yeah I just love that so I feel like sometimes in stories where children are adopted there are you know like buts you know and there are qualifications to the relationship but that's absolutely not the case here and yeah I thought that was really moving yeah um so yeah just really great writing I've got a bit of a soft spot for Brasso as well he's really I mean I from the beginning like he obviously seemed like a cool character who genuinely cared about Cassian and his family yeah but now I'm like sort of shipping him with Bix and <laughs> nice glad they got out of their safe same yeah no I feel like Brasso is one of those characters who's a bit of a dark horse like you know we meet all these people from Ferrix you know just Cassian's circle I guess you know all the people that he's dealings with and I liked Brasso you know he was a cool dude but I wasn't like watching anything like yeah Brasso's a legend you know whereas after this episode I was like damn Brasso's a badass you know like when they actually start fighting against the Empire after Marva's speech you know like the way that Brasso was fighting those troopers and like flinging them to the ground it's like wow this dude is strong you know like it was really really cool um, so yeah, he became a real standout for me. Yeah, and also, I don't know how true this is, but I read that the end of Marva's speech in the episode, it goes, but I'll tell you this, if I could do it again, I'd wake up early and be fighting these bastards from the start. Fight the Empire. I won't say the word because I don't want to get us in trouble with like age ratings and stuff for podcasts on our various um, wonderful podcast carriers. Um, but my understanding from various like Reddit leaks and stuff is that the final fight, the Empire, that was originally a four-letter word, but they had to change it. Nice. Yeah, I kind of would have liked to see the uncensored version, but at the same time, I understand why that <laughs> might be going a little bit too far for Disney+. Plus. <laughs> like, not the word, anything but the word. God. <laughs> but yeah. It's amazing, really, what they got away with, you know, over the whole course of the seasons. It does feel like so mature and sophisticated. Um, but yeah, it just feels a little bit weird on Disney Plus, almost. You know, the fact that there's content of this sort of tone, you know, and this maturity. Um, and I guess it's a bit different in the UK because we get everything on Disney Plus. You know, we get content that's on Hulu in America in the UK. So it's a real hodgepodge of like different tones and genres and stuff. But my understanding is that in America, it's usually on Disney Plus. It's mostly family friendly fare. You could show this to a kid; it's mostly fine. But I think they'd be pretty bored because it's kind of like slow, careful, deliberate storytelling. Well, I wonder if that's why they're experimenting by putting those first few episodes on Hulu and and ABC and stuff, trying to find those different audiences. Yeah. No, and I hope it does find more audiences because, yeah, it definitely deserves it. And yeah, what did you think about the tra- the tradition on Ferrix, you know, of like turning the person's ashes into a brick and then putting that brick into a wall? I really I love, love that. that. It, yeah. yeah, just like such a interesting visceral tradition, especially because you see Cassian revisiting his dad's brick in the wall. 
mm-hmm. earlier in the episode and that really drives it home you know the way he touches the brick and then he gets the flashback to his dad teaching him that lesson about looking twice at things and stuff and yeah wow just loved it yeah it was a really nice kind of simple metaphor and like a way for them to show things visually right with like brasso actually having the brick and stuff yeah exactly and i think it applies to so many different characters and their outlooks as well so i think you can see lufin doing that you know he really does need to take a second look at cassian to realize his true value you know he does give him a chance but i think he doesn't think all that much of him you know he's kind of like this guy could be useful but he's not going to be a long-term asset kind of but then you know at the end when cassian goes back to his ship and literally puts himself in front of his face he's kind of like yeah this guy really is an asset to me um and yeah i just feel like it's sort of like a coda one of many to like understand in a lot of the characters motives and perspectives in the show mm-hmm. obviously cassian goes and rescues bix during this episode which i think we were talking before the show weren't we kirsty that we were really really glad that bix got out of that prison i was so relieved and i i just kind of without realizing it i think i thought that she was a goner oh like really I, I, wow i wasn't sure like they'd intentionally leave her but I just thought it would be kind of like left to the wayside and she because she just looked so defeated. Yeah. And I was like, maybe this torture has broken her down to the point where like she wouldn't be able to go on living. But now it seems like there's a real recovery process happening. And and it's even so lovely at the end when she's like, Cassian will find us. Like it's restored her hope in him as well. Yeah. Because their relationship, you know, had real ups and downs there, didn't it? Yeah. So absolutely um and yeah i just god the acting was so good for bix you know like she did just look so frail and so broken the way that she was just way too terrified to even like think about leaving her cell initially you know she really had to be coaxed out of there um and yeah it just my heart broke for her essentially so when they got her back to the ship and you know when she said cassie will come back for us you know that really really touched me because it showed that well she's obviously still deeply traumatized and deeply wounded from what happened to her she is finding a little glimpse of hope again you know which i think she had completely utterly lost you know that whole time she was in that cell and it's only at that very end of the episode that you know you see the fact that someone came back to save her that's finally registering with her and she's like you know there is still some hope for me and for everyone you know which yeah i really loved and it also showed you know the importance of cassian himself and his potential for good yeah i'm just so glad that base got away from those evil people yeah it was horrible like one of the most horrible things i think in episode 11 was seeing like bix being brought in for questioning and it's like an imperial officer taking her into like a meeting room and, you know, he's just like holding out his arm in like quite a gentlemanly fashion, you know, and she's just mm. completely like leaning against him like he's a crutch, you know. And in another context, that would be like a supportive, like kind of almost caring gesture. Yeah, but, yeah it's sick, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's just disgusting, you know, as they're sort of like trying to frame themselves as like the good guys relative to the horror that she's experienced. And ooh, it's yeah. just horrible. Oh, God, yeah, and we have to talk about Cyril and Deirdre. Kirsty, we cannot leave this without talking about Cyril and Deirdre. So in episode 11, we get Cyril doing a little bit of theft. He steals from his mother. 
So that's the depths to which he's descended. Um, and yeah, it just underlines how pathetic he's become, I guess. He has to steal from his mum's safe to get enough money to go back to Ferrix and yeah, it just underlines kind of how sad he is, I guess. Was she messing with the connection on his <laughs> like phone, whatever you call it? Camera? I don't think so. I feel like they would have okay. shown her doing something. I thought she was. I think I the way it was like framed because she was like round the corner, I thought she was like twisting something or <laughs> like, no, leave my son alone. Just it- just regular eavesdropping. Yeah. No, I think she was just trying to listen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all that signal breaking up stuff was so funny to me. So again, I feel like a lot of Cyril's storyline has been so relatable. And Kirsty and I can both relate to internet problems and signals breaking down during communication. There's just such a pathos about that character, isn't it? It's just so sad and pathetic. Yeah, exactly. And... I feel like it's just setting up a really interesting baseline for season two because right now he's just this sad sack, basically. But I feel like he could really surprise us in season two, to be honest, with what he's capable of. So I don't think it's going to be good things. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I don't think they're going to let up on their hunt for Cassian. No, I think they're going to become more and more obsessed. For sure, because yeah. um, they're like feeding each other's obsession. It's like, oh, you're the only one who saw it, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So it's going to turn into a bit of a feedback loop. Um, so yeah, during the insurrection on Ferrix, Deirdre literally gets like pushed into the dirt by the crowd, and they're all like pulling at her. Essentially, you know, you really get the sense she's being like mobbed, and she's screaming. You know, she's completely terrified, and. You were probably just cheering, Kirsty, so I know your feelings about this character. I did have a twinge of empathy because I was like, oh god, that looks terrifying. <laughs> but What? Like, on a human level, obviously she's a monster. She's done horrible things, but I don't know, I guess I just feel like, oh god, that's a really, really scary situation. Um, Good. <laughs> she should be scared. No, no, People she should be scared. Back. Um... But yeah, maybe I was like putting myself there too much. Um, but yeah, sorry, I yeah, like the other are in... apologist. <laughs> oh God. All the other people in that situation are in the same situation. Is it just because the camera's following her? Well, I think it's because she was like being like attacked. You know, I felt like the crowd wanted to pull her to pieces. You know, because they oh, yeah, know I was cheering them on. she's like an imperial officer. Oh, you were cheering them on? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I hate her. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I, I kind of wish now. that my understanding of her was a bit more nuanced, but like she's just got this such permanent sneer on her face. Yeah. Like I think the the actor's doing a fantastic job. She does always look like she smelt a fart. I must say. Yeah, she's just completely loathsome. So yeah, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, get her. <laughs> yeah, and they were for sure going for her. Um, and yeah, then it's a very quick scene. But Cyril basically, I guess he sort of presents himself as if he's another like townsperson. And then he like puts a gun to her, you know, like sort of takes her into a storeroom, and you know, Deirdre probably thinks he's gonna like kill her or whatever. Yeah. It's like you, you know. And again, just the performance is so wonderful, you know, just like the complete shock, like blended with relief, you know, when she realizes it's someone who does not have murder in mind for her. I guess. I honestly thought they were gonna have them kiss at that point. Yeah, they they were fr- filming it like in those terms essentially right with like oh, yeah. very tight close up like it could easily have happened yeah because it was just like obviously she was so thankful to be saved it was like my hero <laughs> exactly. and that, I was thinking it's sort of like parallel doesn't it because you get 
it's sort of like a twisted parallel. But you get Cassian rescuing Bix, which is like a very pure, nice, heroic rescue. You know, we like yeah, that. Yeah, you're right. But then you also get the really twisted, sick, messed up Cyril and Deirdre dynamic where he rescues her. Um, mm. And yeah, and I feel like everything in this show is quite deliberate. So I do feel like the choice to have two rescues in a way you know, of a man rescuing a woman, but like completely different contexts and relationships mm. going on. I feel like there was deliberate intent behind that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I feel like with this whole De- Deirdre and Cyril thing, it feels so transactional to me because I feel like Cyril is doing that, knowing that it's going to transform how he's perceived by Deirdre. You know, he's not just saving Deirdre for her own sake. He's also saving her because he knows what she can do for him. And he also wants like an access to her world, you know, and he wants to be part of her world. Oh God, I sound like Aladdin. <laughs> part of your world. I was a little mermaid. We I mean, can picture him singing that to her. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, a whole new world, maybe. A whole new empire. Can... Oh yeah, that was uh, Little Mermaid. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I'm pretty fascinated to see how Deirdre's perception of him evolves. Like, you know, once she calms down and realises she's not in a life-threatening situation anymore yes he saved her but like is she still repulsed by him does she finally see that he has a use yeah is he going to be like her igor <laughs> you know <laughs> yes, like, what's master. the dynamic they're gonna be <laughs> yes yeah, so i think there's like one very brief dialogue exchange where she's basically like i should say thank you and he's like there's no need <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's such a simp he's the total yeah, it's, simp it's disturbing so yeah, I'm fascinated to see what they do with those characters next season. And I also saw, I'm sorry, I can't remember who pointed this out, but it was a really good observation, I think in a tweet somewhere. Um, someone had said that what you get is a parallel between Cyril finding himself completely out of his depth and overwhelmed in the first, in episode three of the season. And then that's compared to Deirdre finding herself completely overwhelmed and out of her depth here in this episode. Because, you know, these are people where when they're in their own zones, you know, when like De- Cyril's in his office, you know, he's looking at records, he's making plans, he's very good at his job, he's very meticulous and like very plan oriented. And Deirdre is the same, you know, she has very high standards, she takes care to do her job very well. But both of them are really, really bad in the field. They're completely unsuited to it and they're just completely mm. out of their depth. And obviously Cyril recognises his own inadequacy, I think, in those sorts of situations by the end of the season. But that's new to Deirdre. And I think that's part of why she's so shocked and appalled, you know, to suddenly find herself in a situation where she does have no control over what's happening and find herself so utterly vulnerable. Yeah, it was probably quite easy for her to walk around the ISB giving demands and like orchestrating things, but actually out in the field is a different thing entirely where there's a physical like rebellion going on. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's going to, now they both have that perspective and they realise their weaknesses, I feel it's going to make them more formidable and dangerous in the next season. Mm. So yeah, we will see. And also, just on a lighter note, I'm very much looking forward to seeing Cyril take Deirdre home to meet his mother. <laughs> I do wonder if his mum's going to show up again next season. Oh God, I hope so, so. I wonder how much more they can do there. He's not going to go back to Coruscant, is he? He's going to stay with Deirdre. So. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess the ISB is on Coruscant, but I can't imagine being like, yeah, I'll just come home to sleep. <laughs> 
honestly, I really, really hope they keep his mum because I think there's so much dramatic potential for seeing Cyril's mum and Deirdre meet. I just... I, I know it might sound too silly, and it probably is too silly, but I really, really want that to happen. <laughs> so please, please, Tony Gilroy, if you're out there listening, please, please write that scene, because, yeah, it would be glorious. Um, yeah, I'll take the whole sitcom, sitcom about that, and now I'm going to stop, because Kirsty's going to think I'm even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree that their dynamic is definitely very interesting. It's just also very repulsive. <laughs> It makes my skin crawl. <laughs> so yeah, you're not here for a sitcom then. <laughs> well, it's definitely absurd, so I can see it. Yes. You know, and she is a great actress as well. Like, yeah, that's I, his mum has like created such a strong impression. Yeah, you know, and it's such a key part of his character and where you see that he's kind of come from and where those resentments have been fermenting. Exactly. I'll let you know when I write the fan fiction, Kirsty, <laughs> okay. so you can read it as a proof of concept. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Should make a great mother-in-law. <laughs> exactly. Maybe we'll get Cyril and Deirdre's wedding. <laughs> I did see someone say that um, in terms of characterizations, it is impossible because we know who Hux's parents are. But they would make perfect parents for um, General Hux for the sequels <laughs> because you know the character traits—they're very, very evocative of Hux. So yeah, I think all three of them would get on very well. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I'm going to stop now. His spiritual parents. Yeah, his spiritual parents. Yeah, if he knew they existed, he'd just be pining after them. Like Cyril did for Deirdre. So yeah, it's all a circle. It all connects. But yeah, is there anything else you want to talk about? Like with regards to the insurrection or like anything else really regarding the finale, Kirsty? There's obviously so much going on because it's like the culmination of the whole season, right? Um, but yeah, I kind of want to build us towards discussing that final line from Cassie and Telufen because that's obviously what caps everything off. I guess we haven't talked much about the manifesto, but yeah. I think yeah. maybe because it's such a great overarching like summation of what the series as a whole is about. Yeah. And yeah. also because there have just been so many amazing monologues throughout the show that it's just like another brick in the wall. It's like they're all they've all been so strong and successful at what they're doing with like furthering the narrative, furthering our understanding of what these characters are about and and um, the progression of the story that is just kind of like the cherry on top. Yeah, exactly. I see what you did there with Brick and the Wall. Very good. <laughs> Very good. But yeah, no, I agree about the manifesto and I think primarily it's meant to serve as a sort of through line that helps you understand how Cassian's political consciousness is evolving because obviously he's given it, you know, after the events of Aldani after Nemec dies and he's very clear that he doesn't want it you know but Vel insists that he have it because Nem that's what Nemec wanted you know he really wanted Cassian to listen to this and there's like a scene I think where you know Cassian opens it briefly maybe by mistake and he starts hearing Nemec's voice you know reciting the um, manifesto and he immediately shuts it down you know he just doesn't want to hear and then that is immediately prior to like going to Neomos, you know, and trying to forget everything and then obviously going to prison. And, you know, then when he's in prison and he experiences that treatment, I think he comes back from that, obviously, a changed man. And then we see him actually open up the manifesto and start to listen to it willingly, you know, because he's finally in a position where he understands the need for that sort of writing, you know, and why it's so important that there are these people with these commitments to these rebellious causes 
and people who want to inspire others along those lines. You know, so I think just the act of him opening that book and like actually listening to Noemi's words, that alone tells you everything you need to know from a storytelling perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it goes hand in hand with Marva talking to the citizens on Ferrix, right? This idea that even when people have gone, their ideas remain and they can inspire others and impact real change going forward. Exactly. It's all about awakening political consciousness, essentially, because... Yeah, there's lots of emphasis on the fact that people have been complacent, people have been sleeping, and everyone needs a shock to wake them up and make them do something, essentially. Because that's really Lufen's whole overarching plan too, isn't it? He wants to cause people pain, so they'll start seeing the reasoning behind why the Empire needs to be resisted. Yeah, I think Lufen's frustration is that, like, things have been bad and, like, mildly inconvenient for people, but maybe they've gotten used to them because people can get used to circumstances really very quickly and maybe they're already kind of forgetting what life was like in the republic versus what the empire is doing and so much of it's concealed you know when um they break out of the prison and the reason for them like separating which i didn't entirely see coming because i was like oh okay well i guess they're gonna reunite before rogue one but what are the chances of that that melchie manages to find the people too um he's like we've got to tell people because no one knows that that's happening and that's how the empire is treating people yeah so it's just hidden from the average person's view yeah no it's really really like cleverly done um and i did also like how we don't get much of lufin in the finale but what we do see from him is mostly reaction shots you know like we see him reacting when marva's speech is being delivered you know through the hologram and I think that for him is such like an affirming, joyous experience to see that. Mm. It's him recognizing that this rebellion has become a grassroots movement. There's no longer this like tiny minority of people trying to create dissent, you know, and trying to resist what the empire is doing. It's actually becoming widespread and really like going through the normal people as well because that's what it needs to succeed, right? It needs everyone to fight back. It can't just be like this tiny elite group. And yeah, I think that's such a validating moment for him that I was like, oh, I'm happy for you, man. This is what you needed. Do you think on one level as well at that point, he's like making the connection and and starting to question what he's there to do because it's like, well, that's Cassian's mum and if she thinks that way and has such strong principles maybe i should give cassian a second chance i think it maybe he will be useful i think it definitely primes him to be so quick to accept cassian's proposal to take him in at the end Mm. you know so i think it makes it a much easier choice for him you know the fact that he's seen this positive groundswell of action from the grassroots and he's like yeah no this cassian guy he is valuable you know this is what he comes from you know the the fact that this woman is his mother and if there's any trace of this spirit in him you know then he's worth having along for the ride um so yeah i do think it probably changes his perspective yeah it makes me really look forward to seeing how lufin evolves in season two as well yeah absolutely like i think all the characters are set up for such interesting development and i've realized we haven't talked about vel and cinta either which is bad. Yeah. So obviously, there's not much of them, but there's a really interesting scene where Vel arrives on Ferrix and Cinta is just there, like staking someone out. I can't remember who. I know, I was so sad for Vel. I was like, can you turn around and give her oh, a kiss at least? I know. <laughs> and 
again, I think, you know, there's no like clear cut resolution to that. But I think what's, what it's really seeding is, I think we were talking about this last time, maybe that, you know, for Cinta, the rebellion is her main reason for existing, right? Whereas mm. for Val, she really cherishes and needs that relationship. So I think being ignored by Cinta like that and clearly being so tangential to Cinta's priorities, I think that's really wounding Val, you know, and I think it might challenge her commitment to the rebellion in the future. At least when she said, come away from the window, she did finally listen to her. Yeah. There was some. You know, maybe she just needed the reminder, like, you can't completely give yourself over to this. You still have to have your humanity in your relationships, too. Exactly. Yeah. I have, I have hope. Yeah, no, same. I don't want, like, a tragic... I know all relationships end badly in Star Wars, but... <laughs> yeah, let's have one good ending. Come on, come on, Gilroy, you can do that. I'm not optimistic, to be honest, but you never know. We don't know yet, so anything's possible. Yeah. And I do feel like Gilroy is much more optimistic than given credit for. You know, I feel like there is more Oh, yeah, this, hope this whole story. show is incredibly optimistic about human nature and what people can do when they team up and yeah it's it, obviously it has this like groundedness and like a dirtiness to it but like that's that's not in conflict with that overall messaging it's just like the atmosphere of the show isn't it exactly and i love that about it because it's like the opposite of grimdark you know there's no darkness in this show for the sake of it everything horrible and bleak in the show is very purposeful and there to serve a specific storytelling purpose none of it's gratuitous you know like bix's torture you know that's there to make your heart sore you know when she's rescued you know yeah. it's not just i i feel like certain shows and movies is like an element of sadism to show when people suffer and there's none of that here is always very much keen on making you fully aware of the horror of what you're watching in those sorts of moments mm-hmm and yeah, then the whole episode just caps off with a really beautifully simple line from Cassian to Lufin. Cassian just says, kill me or take me in. And in response, you see Lufin do one of his wonderful smiles. Oh, I love it's it. So good. <laughs> and the episode ends. And you have everything you need to know. The expression on Stellan's face tells you instantly that, yeah, Lufin is welcoming this man into the fold. You know, that Cassian has his purpose and he knows exactly what he wants to do going forward and Lufin will put him in a position where he can do it. And, yeah, I just love it and I think it's the perfect cap to the season and the perfect setup for the next season, you know, because I feel like when we get to the next season, we're probably going to see Cassian as an established rebel at that point because this has been his origin. We now understand where that political consciousness comes from and why he's so committed to this cause and why he has so much motivation to fight. And yeah, I just think it's been fantastic storytelling and just a really wonderful arc for Cassian. Yeah, it makes me really look forward to seeing more scenes with those two characters now they're at this point of like, a, you know, a tentative trust and like a a belief that Lufin has in him as to, you know, you can do more than just this one isolated mission. Yeah. Like, I really do think that you've got what it takes. Yeah, it is very interesting to think about, you know, in a future where Cassian and Saw are connected and I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. There's so many storytelling possibilities. It's really, really cool. Um, And yeah, I think it definitely reminds us that we need to rewatch Rogue One. Um, oh yeah because yeah at some point it would be fun to sort of do a oh what could happen in season two 
discussion you know let's not do that this time because we need to wrap up relatively soon um but yeah i just feel so excited for season two and i'm sure anything i could predict will probably be wrong because i feel like that's always been the case but it would still be fun and we need something to get us through the way until season two (laughs) so yeah that'll probably come at some point but we'll see um yeah do you have any final thoughts on this season kirsty before we wrap up just that I, I do plan to rewatch it, which is probably going to be. Uh, I've rewatched that parts of The Mandalorian, yeah. but uh, you know, not in a long time. So it is like kind of a big deal for me to want to go back to a Disney Plus show. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was getting the wrong end of the stick so much with these like pretty layered motives and like half. You know, that a lot of the characters are like putting on a show in one respect. So. I wasn't quite sure where they were going with certain things, so I was kind of inwardly making a lot of wrong predictions about stuff throughout the series, so it'll be interesting to go back now that I do know where things are headed and what choices they'll make. Yeah, I feel like rewatching that first arc in particular would be really interesting because they spend so much time just like letting you get to know the people of Ferrix, you know, and introducing you to that world. I remember at the time when I was first watching it, it felt a little bit slow and I wasn't sure why we were following all those individual stories. But then I think when it comes back to it all in the finale on Ferrix, you see all those people get their moments to shine and you really start to care about Ferrix as a place and you really care about his people. I feel like that's going to give a whole new context and meaning to all that stuff early on. So yeah, I feel like it would be a very rewarding show to rewatch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so just brilliant brilliant stuff some of the best stars we've had in a very long time and I'm really really happy this show exists and the fact it was such a pleasant surprise to be honest you know so I don't think this was anyone's most anticipated Star Wars show when we first heard it announced I think there was a lot of incredulity almost you know over like why is this going to be a thing why not, but, why not? Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean not incredulity for me just a bit like meh you know, I'll yeah. watch it, but it's not what it's not one that I'm like actively waiting for. But you know, even down, like even the score just by itself has been fantastic, and like having that live music as part of the funeral procession at the finale that was just so atmospheric and wonderful. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, just like really, really great storytelling all round, and yeah, just very happy this show exists. So thank you to the whole team behind it; they did a great job. Um, yeah, so let's cap it off there. Um, and I'm Rachel. You can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918 and on Tumblr at Star Wars Nonsense. I'm Kersey and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. I'm, I'm on Tumblr, but I don't know what I'm called anymore. I haven't been on it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so. I can't remember what you're called on there either, to be honest. <laughs> wow, that's bad. Um, I need. To I think I that. changed it a while back. Yeah, so I'll I'll, yeah. I'll have to get back to people on that. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> you can like do like Return of the King. To I want to get back into it because I'm not on Twitter anymore. Yeah, and I, I don't want to like become completely disconnected from the fandom. For sure. Yeah. No, Tumblr is still it's not super active, but it's more active than it was. I've had a few nice conversations with people on Tumblr and like fun reblogging art and stuff. So yeah, come back, Kirsty. We would like to have you there. Is there still a real like sequel trilogy focus? Um, like 
it's it's definitely or is it like full on with Andor and it's quieted down a lot obviously you know because people are always focused on what's current right so there's a lot of like Andor gifts and stuff on the timeline okay but you know there is like Raylo stuff in particular I'm sure there's other sequel stuff as well but I haven't been following those tags as much um but yeah I still need to get another handle on it to be honest okay I'll be interested to check out the Andor fandom now like I haven't listened to like other podcasters and stuff really on on their thoughts on it but now the season's over it might be interesting yeah no exactly i feel like it's such a rich show that everyone's gonna have really interesting thoughts to contribute so yeah i definitely want to check out some other podcasts now we've committed our own thoughts to an audio file so very exciting (laughs) but yeah so i think based on where we got to with that outro which has suddenly become much longer than it normally is i believe it's the time when i say until next time Bye. Bye.